I don't know if I have any fellow glasswares, uh, but the struggle is real with the mask and the glasses. Um, <clears throat> I heard somebody say that the benefit of wearing masks is that we don't have to smell other people's bad breath, but we're painfully aware of our own bad breath uh, every day. Um, and so um, <clears throat> as I'm free from that for a moment, I hope you <laughs> enjoy yourself uh, during the message. <clears throat> I, I mentioned earlier that a year ago this week, we, we held our first public service at, at Ba Elementary, uh, and it's been a, a pretty wild year uh, since then. Um, <clears throat> we've perhaps been uh, meeting outside of Ba about as long as we met inside of Ba Elementary. But on that day, uh, almost a year ago, on September 8th, I shared from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, and I asked two questions. Who is Jesus and what is the church? Uh, and uh, the, the first question is the most important question that anybody could answer. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus asked his disciples. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a moral man. He wasn't just a prophet, but he is the promised Savior, the one in whom we can find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And the church is made up of those who profess faith in Jesus and are united together in local churches bearing witness to the gospel in all of life and for the good of the world. I said then that to belong to Jesus is to belong to his church. And as we look at Matthew 16, as we looked then, we can see that the hope we have as the church is that Jesus has promised to build his church and that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Jesus wants to take people who profess faith in him and bring them together in local churches so they worship him, so they build one another up, and so they uh, seek to live to make Christ known uh, everywhere they go and in everything they do. And we believe that that's exactly what God has called us to do as a church. He's called us to multiply disciples, those who follow Christ and help others do the same so that we would delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community. And by God's grace, a year later, we're still here. Jesus has established this church, Treasuring Christ Church, and is indeed growing and building us up and using us to love and serve our community, to hold out the gospel to all who would have ears to hear and hearts to respond in repentance and faith, uh, welcoming one another in community, seeking to be faithful uh, to Christ. We began this journey in Ephesians um, a few months ago. We paused in the summer to look at the book of Psalms and uh, to look at what it meant to engage our emotions in a way that, that honored God. Uh, but when we began our series in Ephesians, my prayer was that, that God would use our time studying the book of Ephesians to deepen our love for the church and to deepen our commitment to the mission of the church, to deepen our love for the church and our commitment to the mission of the church. And today we return to Ephesians, and, and we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 <clears throat> uh, is really a transition chapter in, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 uh, unpack the beauty and the glory of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Christ, the, the spiritual blessings that we have 
from God the Father through uh, and in Christ by the Holy Spirit. We, we've seen how the gospel comes to us as good news for lost sinners who are dead in our sins and trespasses, but through faith in Christ can be made alive with Christ. And not only can sinners be reconciled to God, but God is doing an even more wonderful thing. A mystery, he says. The mystery of Christ is that God brings divided sinners together in the body of Christ, in the church. He reconciles sinners together. And, and so in Ephesians 1 through 3, we, we get the, the unpacking of the gospel, the, the beauty, the truth of the gospel, if you will. But then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul turns and he begins to apply the gospel. And you see, this is an important dynamic to remember as we look at God's word that um, when we think about what we're called to do, we could say the, the imperatives of our faith. We're not just called to, to do certain things without having the basis or a foundation for doing them. Uh, for, my, for my grammar, my English folks, the imperatives of the gospel follow from are dependent upon the indicatives of the gospel, what God has done for us, what, what God has done for us in Christ, what he's accomplished for us, who he is, and what, what he's done for us compels us then to live differently, to live for him. And, and that's exactly what we see in Ephesians throughout the book. In chapters 1 through 3, we see the explanation of the gospel. In chapters 4 through 6, we see the application of the gospel, the imperatives of the gospel for the church and for believers. And so Paul is making this shift to, to talk about what the church should do, how the church should live. And we're going to see over the next few weeks, we're going to see the unity of the church, the growth of the church, and the purity of the church as we look at Ephesians 4 through chapter 5, verse 21. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to consider the unity of the church. Listen to God's word from Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. As we look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and what it has to say about the unity of the church, I, I want us to see at least four different truths. The first is that the unity of the church is born out of our shared calling. Verse 1 says <clears throat> that we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In fact, that, that command is the main command in this passage. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Or, or in another way of saying it is live your life in such a way that it's worthy of the calling to which you've been received. And, and Paul has already showed us that he's transitioning. He, he begins uh, chapter 4 verse 1 with therefore. 
Uh, anytime you read the Bible and you see uh, therefore, you should ask, what's it there for? Uh, here in two weeks, we're going to have our first equip class this fall, and it's going to be on uh, studying the Bible uh, with the title of Help Me Study the Bible. And I'm excited to, to unpack how we can grow in our understanding of God's Word. If a squirrel drops on you, uh, I apologize. Uh, that isn't within our insurance plan. So, um, <clears throat> but. Uh, but when we, when we look at verse 1 from chapter 4, we know a transition's about to take place. And, and all that I just shared about what God has done for us in Christ and uniting us together with Him and uniting us together with one another, this is our shared calling. Our shared calling is wrapped up in the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ and by His Spirit. And as you revisit chapters 1 through 3, what, what it does, what it should do as you read Ephesians 1 through 3, is, is deepen uh, your view of the greatness and the, the goodness of what God has done for us. It, it should increase our view of God. We need, we need a big view of God to sustain the unity of the church. We, we need to understand the, the beauty of God to, to enable us to endure Sometimes the hard struggle of maintaining the unity that Christ has won for us. And so Paul is saying that he's urging, there's this sense of, of urgency to uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called. And, and as I, I think about what Paul is saying, and, and really verse 1 is a, is a theme verse for this whole second half of the book of Ephesians. We, the calling of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 uh, leads us to then live worthy of that calling. And, and as I thought, I thought about what that means, how we should think about what God is saying to us here, it, it's the difference between, um, you know, parents saying to their children, hey, uh, you know, go, go out into the world and don't bring any dishonor to our family. There's, there's that kind of maybe fear-shame model, uh, and it's healthy to know who you are and not bring reproach upon your family, right? Uh, but there's, there's also another sense in which, uh, as, as you think about parents sending their child out into the world, uh, and instead of saying, don't bring dishonor to our family, we say, go and be my child in the world. Live worthy of your calling. Not, not just the negative aspect of don't bring shame on the family, but, but go demonstrate and display the worth of who you belong to in the way that you live. And that's what Paul's calling us to, this shared calling, uh, a deep understanding of the gospel, a big view of God. This is, this is to what to, to we have been called. So live worthy of it. And, and if we're to understand how to pursue and how to keep unity in the church, we have to continually return to our shared calling to remember who called us, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to what He has called us, to belong to Him and to belong to one another, to belong to Him as His children and to belong to one another as family. You see, the church isn't just like a family. The church is a family. If you are in Christ here at Treasuring Christ, you are my brother, my sister. I am your brother, your sister. We call upon God as Father and Jesus as our elder brother and Savior. We are a family. We have this great calling. We must live worthy of the calling. We must go and be God's children in the world. 
and it's this shared calling that's that that gives birth to our unity as a church. And the second thing I want us to see is in verses two through three, and that's that the unity of the church is cultivated by Christ-like character. The unity of the church is cultivated by Christ-like character. What what Paul does in verses two through three is all that follows is is a fleshing out of what it means to live worthy of our calling. So he says to live worthy of our calling is to live with uh, with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. This is how you walk worthy of your calling. And as I read this, and as you think about what this is saying, you know, we've, we've got this buildup, this great calling to which we have been called. Now go live worthy of it. And what does it look like to live worthy of that calling? Humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another, loving one another. None of that's flashy, right? None of that's like really awesome and cool. That's just faithfulness. Faithfully showing up and being there for one another, seeking to love each other and the mess and the struggles and the hardships and the good times and the bad times. This living worthy of our calling isn't flashy. It's about being faithful. It isn't really about us. It's ultimately about Jesus, the character that we see is character defined by and most evident in Jesus. It says that we're called to, to live with humility. Humility is, is lowliness of mind. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Paul would say it's not only considering your own needs, but the needs and interests of others. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. One, one commentator would say it this way, that it's the humble recognition of the worth and the value of other people. Imagine if we live with that type of humility in relation to others, in relation to one another in the body of Christ. We're to live with a lowliness of mind, with a humility towards one another, with gentleness, Gentleness is a, a fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. It's, it's something that God works in us. That's good news. I don't know if, you're, if you always feel gentle or not, but gentleness isn't weakness. It's actually the exact opposite. Gentleness is strength controlled. This is meekness. This is the term meekness that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the heart of Christ when, when Jesus says who he is to the world in Matthew 11, 28, 29, he says, Come to me, all you who are, uh, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's who Jesus says he is. This, this fall, uh, within our women's discipleship ministry, uh, they're going to be reading the book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, by the author, Dane Hortland, that looks at uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight and just the heart of Christ for us as his people. And what it, it looks like to have everyday faithfulness that's rooted in understanding the heart of Christ. I would encourage you um, for our women to, to be a part uh, of, that, uh, of reading through that book coming up uh, in the fall. Our men are going to be also reading through uh, a book on biblical manhood this fall that I would love uh, for you to be a part of. Um, but this gentleness is a gentleness that's evident in Christ. It's strength under control. Gentleness, uh, as Ortland says, and I, I think I've said this before, but I love this summary of Jesus. I read this for the first time and I thought, God, I want this to be true of me. 
Jesus, he said, is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary, not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's Jesus. And Jesus is calling us as his people to be marked by humility and gentleness. And then he says patience and bearing with one another. In some ways, these two terms are are almost synonymous. To be patient is to be long-suffering. It's to, to endure I'm, I'm great with being patient as long as it goes quickly, right? Like, I don't know if you feel that way, but we, we probably all struggle with patience a little bit. Uh, I, I know for me, I, uh, uh, one of the, the most, uh, uh, you know, sanctifying moments is when I have to call AT&T, uh, you know, to switch your service or, or to deal with something. I, I see some nodded heads. Maybe it's a different provider for you, but... Uh, you're like, I just want to talk to a person. No, I already told somebody else that. You know, didn't the other person who transferred me tell you what we talked about? Sorry, <clears throat> it came out a little bit more uh, raw than I thought. <laughs> patience with AT and T is one thing, but patience within the body of Christ—that's what leads to unity. Bearing with one another. There's. This is the Greek word for putting up with each other. Literally, put up with one another. It involves bearing with one another's weakness, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because, they're, because of those faults in them which perhaps offend or displease us. To put up with one another in love. <clears throat> one commentator I was reading said, Christian community is no picnic can be messy. It can be difficult. We're to have loving forbearance. Just as you may find somebody else difficult to love, difficult to enjoy being around, odds are somebody finds you that way as well. I know, probably not you, uh, but that's the reality. We're to bear with one another. The church isn't perfect, and we'll talk about the already not yet aspect of our unity. And because of that imperfection, because that sin is present and weakness is evident, we're called to be patient and lovingly bear with one another, put up with one another in love, which is bound together, the giving of oneself for the good of another. Jesus would define it and display it for us, that he would lay down his life for us. Love is sacrificial by its very nature, and Christian community and unity of the church requires sacrifice of God's people, a sacrifice oftentimes of preferences and conveniences, as well as the sacrifice of forgiveness that binds together God's people. So I said that these are Christ, this is Christ-like character. And if it's Christ-like character, it's Christ-like character not just because we ought to be like Jesus, which we should. Christ displays these things. Christ is the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is the one who despised the shame and endured the cross for our sake. Talk about patience that leads to salvation. It's God who's not slow to keep his promises, but is patient 
desiring all to come to repentance and faith in him. It's, it's Jesus who demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. So it's not just that we should be like Jesus, but, but this kind of character is only possible if you're in Jesus. Christ-like character, it's not just about imitating Jesus, but it's possible because we're in Jesus. We're in Christ, in relationship with him. And here's, here's what I believe, that the unity of the church depends upon the people of the church striving in every way to reflect Jesus in their lives and their relationships. The unity of the church is dependent on the people of the church striving to reflect Jesus in their lives and in their relationships. This is what makes for unity. Listen, we're going to talk about some we're going to talk about politics here in a moment. <clears throat> it's always a fun topic. And I think sometimes we think that politics is the most maybe divisive thing ever, right? And it's 2020, and so perhaps it might be. Um, but you know, I think more often the threats to unity in the church are the smaller inconveniences, the smaller sins, that when somebody rubs you the wrong way, but then that just sticks in your mind and you hold that against them and resentment rises up. It's the, it's the when somebody else does something different than you and your preferences look different. Um, I don't know how, how much you've been around the church, but um, there, there have been plenty of churches that have split over people not liking the, the color of the carpet and where somebody decided to put the piano and, uh, and, and you, you name it. Um, and if, you, if you've not been around the church very much, you might be like, man, y'all are a weird bunch of people. Um, but if we're all honest in our lives, how often do we just avoid certain people because we just don't like them? We, we just don't enjoy them. Well, in the family of God, we, we're called to this type of Christ-like character, which doesn't allow us to write anybody off, which doesn't allow us just to dismiss anybody out of hand. Oh, there are some big issues we have to navigate, but I often think it's the small things in our life that require faithfulness and Christ-like character that promote and cultivate unity in the church that we must strive for. We're a young church. We, we don't have any carpet uh, to quibble over. Uh, maybe there's an acorn that you're a little upset about that you're sitting on in a blanket or, uh, you know, uh, squirrels are dropping stuff on you or whatever the case may be. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we have a keyboard. Sometimes we, we're not arguing about those things. But you might, you might be upset about the change to small groups, or you might wish we were doing something else sooner than we're doing it, or you might, you might not like the way that that person does certain things, or, or why are they that leader and of this, and why am I? Like, those are the things, seemingly small, that if we don't cultivate Christ-like character, it will be the unity of the church that suffers. And here's the thing about community. If we just make community, if it's all about community, all about community, then we often can get off track. What makes community most meaningful and most, um, uh, most reflective of what God wants is when community isn't the thing that's the end goal, but when Jesus is the thing. And if Jesus is the thing, we will get community. If Jesus is what we're focused on and striving after, we will experience the kind of community that he's called us to. We must put first things first. And the unity of the church is cultivated by Christ-like character. And it goes on, and Paul says that the unity of the church must be an urgent concern. In verse 3, look at what it says. It says that 
We must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 3 has like the force of a command. It seems like another command, but it's actually just further describing the way that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. How do you walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Be eager to keep the unity of the church. Literally be zealous. Make every effort to walk in unity. Unity is something that we don't take for granted, but it's something that we, we seek eagerly. And when we think about our unity, our unity is both already and not yet. You see, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that our unity is one for us by Christ and through the Holy Spirit. We are united together in Christ as, as different people, as divided sinners, brought into the family of God, brought into unity with one another. That is the reality of who we are. This is what Christ has secured on our behalf. It's the bond of peace that Ephesians 2.14 talks about, that Jesus is our peace. He purchased peace for us. And yet here's the thing. That unity isn't always embodied. That unity isn't always experienced. It's not fully yet. It's secured for us by Christ, and yet it's something that we must pursue. And according here, it must be of urgent concern because we must make every effort to keep this, the, the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is why Christ-like character is so necessary for experiencing unity. And on this front, we must not lose heart. As we think about the last five months, we've not only navigated a health pandemic, but we've also been confronted with America's original sin, the social unrest that's flown from racism and its lingering effects in our country. And when I think about unity and the conversation sometimes that Christians are having about race, there's this sentiment sometimes that says, well, what's really dividing the church is that we're talking too much about race, some would say. I hear that and I say, nope, that ain't it. That's not it. The problem isn't that we're talking about it too much. And yet, at the same time, we must be clear as, as God's people, what God has done for us in Christ, the most essential and important identity we bear is the identity of Christian, the identity of belonging to Jesus. Our identity in Christ is paramount over all other identities, racial or ethnic or otherwise. In a great book that I'm working my way through by Erwin Entz, is a pastor in Washington, D.C., speaks about the unity and the diversity of the church. He says, only Jesus is able to bear the weight of the center. It's easy for us sometimes to feel that our racial or ethnic identity can bear the center. It maybe even feels most natural sometimes. But he says, your whiteness cannot bear the weight of the center. Your blackness cannot bear the weight of the sinner. Your Asianness cannot bear the weight of the sinner. Latinoness, your uh, or our Americanness cannot bear the weight of the sinner. Our whateverness, he says, cannot bear the weight of the sinner, the center of our lives. God alone has the wisdom and the power and the grace to weave the tangled threads of different people with different cultures, with different customs, with different languages into a single tapestry of glorious beauty. The Spirit, though, does not remove our diversity. Rather, he enables us to love, hear, seek, understand, and pursue one another in our diversity with 
the Holy Spirit, we hear and understand. Without him, we misunderstand through fear and distrust and self-ambition. Unity cannot be engineered. It's a matter of the Spirit. And we can add, according to Ephesians 4, it must be of urgent concern for us. So some might say that talking about race is the problem. I say, no, that's not the problem. Yet we must be clear that our, our other identities are submitted to Christ, that don't erase those identities, but actually make them as beautiful as God intends them to be. And frankly, in the church at times, it's perhaps the, uh, the, the white American church that has to actually become aware that we even have an identity that we haven't addressed and, 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 and worked through and thought through. And the other level when we talk about race is, is actually the truth is our failure to deal with race and the lingering effects of racism is evidence of disunity among us. We must not settle for a perceived unity that avoids past offenses and present wounds of racism. Can't hide our head in the sand and think it'll go away. And yet, we can't underestimate the power of the Spirit to bring unity in the church in the face of a divided world. It comes back to Christ-like character. It comes back to walking in humility and gentleness, patience and forbearance. What will it cost us as a church, to have this kind of unity. In a short post about the cost of unity, Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile, also in D.C., he said this. He said, If there is to be a fuller experience of unity, particularly as it relates to the issue of race and the unity of the church, if there is to be a fuller experience of unity, the cost will include humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word, Humbling ourselves to fellowship with brothers and sisters on all sides of the issue. Humbling ourselves to accept history and social science that affirms and condemns everyone involved in different ways. Humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish. Humbling ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding. Humbling ourselves to say I was wrong or you were right or please forgive me or I hadn't thought of that or didn't know that. The cost of unity is humility. And are we willing to bear the cost? As a church, we must. Because the unity of the church is of urgent concern. And then finally, in verses 4 through 6, we see that the unity of the church is grounded in our common confession. As soon as Paul talks about the unity of the church, he goes on to to give really what we could call a, a theological basis for the unity of the church. It's a string of seven statements that emphasize the oneness, the the unity of our common confession. It is of sorts uh, a creed-like statement, a confession of what the church believed and what was true of the church. He says that our unity is found upon these realities of being one body, our common existence as Christ's church. There's one body, one church. Yes, the church is represented 
today in different denominations, and sometimes denominations have been birthed and churches have split because of sin and others because uh, we no doubt are imperfect and don't know truth to uh, an exhaustive way, and yet as we struggle to understand what the Bible teaches about who the church is and, and what we should believe, sometimes it leads us to, uh, to, to be divided in different denominations or churches, and yet that doesn't have to compromise the ability to look at others in a different church or a different denomination that believes the Bible, that, that believes that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human, that believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and is coming again, that we can look at each other and look at others around us and even be united in Christ, even though we may not worship at the same place on Sunday because we are one body. And that one body is defined by one spirit that is at work among us, that has brought us together and that empowers us to follow God and to pursue unity within our local churches and across churches and even denominations. Marked by one hope, our confidence as God's people of what God has done for us in Christ, a confident expectation of what's to come. That's what defines the church. One Lord. I think sometimes as we think about the common confession of the church, there's a, there's a desire for an ecumenicism sometimes and this desire for uh, working across lines with others that can be healthy. And yet, uh, as we look at what, what defines us and, and what must be paramount, this isn't a wishy-washy unity across different denominations. This isn't, this isn't an interfaith dialogue. This is a common confession that declares Jesus is Lord, that he's in charge, that he calls the shots, that he's fully man and fully God, that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose bodily on the third day and one day he will come again. We have one Lord and his name is Jesus. We have one faith, one body of truth that we embrace taught in the Old and New Testament. One baptism, a baptism by the Spirit that we experience when we put our trust in Christ that happens uh, in many ways unbeknownst to us that our new location is in Christ through the Spirit as well as water baptism or believer's baptism that bears witness to our profession of faith, that we put our trust in Jesus and we're proclaiming that for all to see. That baptism follows the one faith in the one Lord that we declare and that we have one Father. It brings me back to Ephesians 2.18. For through him, Paul says, we have both access and one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus, we have access to the Father. We're not like a family. As I said earlier, we are a family with God as our Father. No matter our background, we now belong in the same family with one another. In just a moment, we'll close in worship and we'll declare this, I believe. We'll, we'll sing what the Apostles' Creed says. <clears throat> the Apostles' Creed that declares that we have believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that we believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. And he has ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. 
We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, not the Holy Roman Catholic Church, but the universal church of all believers of all times. We believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. This is our common confession. This is what unites us. When we think about all the things that could divide us, the one thing that unites us is this common confession of what we believe about God revealed in His Word. To say that our unity is grounded in our common confession then is to clearly and unequivocally say that our unity isn't grounded in any other confession or affiliation, but grounded in our common confession of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. I don't know if you heard, but apparently this is the most important election in our lifetime. The future of Western civilization depends upon it. The future of the church depends upon it. So I've heard. But to say that our unity is grounded in our common confession is at the same time to say it's not grounded in our political affiliation. The church is not bound or beholden to the GOP or the DNC but to the kingdom of God. I was going to say the KOG, but that sounded too cute. Our affiliation is to King Jesus. And yet it's 2020. So let's be real, right? It is an election year. In 2016, we saw the wounds and the division that followed from our election. Some will look at this election and say, how can you vote for a president who supports abortion? Others will look at things and say, how can, how can I not vote for someone who won't address police brutality or acknowledge racial injustice in our country? Some will believe, I think character matters. That the temperament of the person in office matters. I don't see how you could vote for someone who has disparaged women and made offensive comments about other races and ethnicities. Still others would say, I think we should pay attention to issues like religious liberty and, and the, 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 the way that the biblical view of gender and sexuality is being discussed and dismissed in our country. Some will say, I think we should pay attention to the platform more than the candidate. We're not even yet talking about health care or education or, or labor or, uh, or other issues like the environment that have the potential to, to have differences of opinion. How do we sort through it all? Easy, right? It's not. It's not easy. I do know this, that your salvation isn't dependent upon what you do in the voting booth. And that the unity of the church is more defined not by what you do in the, unit, in the voting booth, but what you do when you walk out of it and how you live your daily life. I know that this election will come and it will go. America may one day come and go. But the kingdom of God won't. The church won't. That has to define us. I'm not, I, I don't have the answers to all of those things. My job is to, is to tell you to exercise your right to vote. Go register. But don't define yourself 
or allow the unity of the church to depend on your political affiliation more than our common confession and God. And I think our fear that we have to be honest with is that sometimes we have become more confident and passionate about our political positions than we are about our faith convictions. Our common confession and our commitment to Christ-like character is what allows us to navigate a multitude of differences, whatever form they may take. And as a church, we're called to eagerly maintain the unity of the church. Not a false unity that avoids the issues and that just glosses over, that doesn't deal with wounds and hurts, but a real unity defined by our shared calling, cultivated by Christ-like character, grounded in our common confession. So in light of this, how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? There are two things that I think we must do. We have to check ourselves. Check yourself. Are you cultivating Christ-like character? Are you growing in humility and gentleness, patience and loving forbearance? Are you walking in love towards others? This isn't just an individual thing, but this is a corporate thing. Is this defining us as a people? You know what I love about treasuring Christ? What I want to hear? Is, man, those people are defined by a genuine love for each other. They care about people. They welcome you into community. That's who we ought to be. Let's check ourselves. Are we grounded in our common confession of what we believe? Are we more passionate about something else other than that confession? And as we check ourselves, the second thing we must do to pursue unity is move towards each other. Move towards each other. Sure, keep six feet apart, wear your mask, but move towards one another in humility and patience and gentleness and loving forbearance and the small stuff and the big stuff and the month of November on November 2nd, on November 3rd, and on November 4th. Let's walk in unity. Let's be the church. Who's the church? We are. Let's walk in the unity that Christ has won for us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Got a word for us about the unity of the church, a word that we need to hear, a word that we need to live out. God, help us as your people to walk in unity, a unity that you've won for us and that you enable by your spirit. God, help us to, to grow in this Christ-like character. God, I know in my own heart, it's easy for me to be more confident and sure of what I think about an issue than it is for me to be quick, to be patient, quick to listen. The kind of character that moves us towards empathy as well as truth-telling, the, the, the willingness to have hard conversations. God, I pray that we have a unity that's deep enough to have whatever conversations we need to have. God, give us, give us a, a greater confidence in our common confession of who you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and who you've called us to be as your people. God, use, use us as we walk in unity to display to the world your love. 
to display to the world the goodness and the truth of the gospel. God, let us be a people who are marked by unity in a world divided and marked by disunity. God, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, help us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who as they hear about the the work of Christ done on our behalf, the unity we can find in you and, and in relationship to others, and they don't know you as Lord and Savior. God, would today, would you draw them to yourself? Would you help them to call out, turn from their sin and trust in you? God, lead them to to talk to the person that they came with or come and share with us about that decision or about those questions. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your church. Help us to be your church. In Jesus' name.